Coming up on The Exam Room. Obesity medicine. It's really kind of interesting. When you hear those two things together, it really kind of does drive home this point that even though obesity is so normalized in our society and even globally now, it is still a disease, isn't it? Yeah, I think that that's in the last five years, and you could talk about the intention behind it, but there's really been a lot of talk about changing the terminology into saying this is a chronic disease, it's not just a lifestyle choice. Now, within that, there's a lot of subtlety, but, but you know, it definitely is. And, and anyone who's ever gained a lot of weight and taken it off or tried to take it off and, and dealt with the long-term consequences could echo that. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in San Diego, California, Miramar, Florida, and Casablanca, Morocco. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 64 of season 6, number 460 overall. And this one comes on the heels of big time news that Weight Watchers is, quote, gambling everything on obesity drugs. And the big financial publication Bloomberg even speculates that Ozempic and Wegovy, they may save the 60-year-old company if they don't kill it first. And so this really speaks to the heart of the two words that you heard right at the start of the podcast today, obesity, medicine, because obesity is a disease just like any other. And often it's the precursor for the big ones like cancer and heart disease. So today we have with us the chief of obesity medicine at Northwell Health and the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra, Dr. Jamie Kane. He specializes in this and there are lots of interesting angles that we can take here. Some that are going to take me right back to the old me, back to 420 pounds. And would I have had a different opinion then? Absolutely. Much, much, much different. And I think that may be similar for a lot of people who are still struggling. And that's okay. You're just in a different mindset at that point. It's where you are at that moment. And I say at that moment because circumstances can change. Moments move on. And so your mind can change as well. So here's what we are going to be getting into today to begin that process. Number one, overcoming your body's desire to keep weight on. Your body loves to hold on to those pounds. Also going to be talking about obesity bias in medicine. And then feelings versus facts. The kind of debate of being obese versus having obesity. What is the correct terminology there? What's missing right now in weight loss treatments? And whether medication can work alone or does it always require a lifestyle and dietary intervention as well? Plus long-term success of these popular weight loss medications, their side effects, and can constipation perhaps 
be caused by some of these medications as well. So much to get into with Dr. Jamie Kane. So let's not waste another minute. Here now, a phenomenal conversation ahead of the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine with Dr. Kane. Great to see you again, Doc. Thanks, Chuck. Great to be here. I'm thrilled that you are here, especially seen as though um, I know that you just had some recent surgery, so I want to extend the best on behalf of myself in the exam roomies for a swift recovery. Thank you. That's me. Thanks. Obesity medicine. Two words put together. It's really kind of interesting. When you hear those two things together, it really kind of does drive home this point that even though obesity is so normalized in our society and even uh, globally now, it is still a disease, isn't it? Yeah, I think that that's in the last, you know, five years. Um, and you could talk about the intention behind it, but there's really been a lot of talk in the about changing the terminology um, into saying this is a chronic disease. It's not just a lifestyle choice. Now, within that, there's a lot of subtlety, but but you know, it definitely is. And and anyone who's ever gained a lot of weight and taken it off or tried to take it off and and dealt with the long-term consequences um, could echo that. It's it's interesting. I think it's so weird to me that there is still this stigma against being overweight, given the fact that literally the vast majority of the population now is, um, and yet we still kind of have this, this, uh, I, I don't know, there, there's this taboo, there's this stigma surrounding it that I think certainly only compounds the issue. Um, not to throw you right into the boiling water, man, but where do you weigh in on the body positivity angle of this where I feel personally as somebody um, who used to weigh 420 pounds that it's never okay to body shame. But at the same time, I feel like if we don't address the problem head on, we really are really pulling the wool over our eyes and we can't improve our health. So, yeah, I would say we probably fall in the same camp there. Um in terms of in terms of you know finding the balance there, um, I do agree it is a chronic disease, um, and you know uh, making people feel bad about it uh, or or you know anti obesity bias, which you know we're we're going to be doing some research on that, um, is is really you know prevalent in every every um, part of society. Although it's usually at its worst in in the medical system. Um, and so, you know, that, that has no place anywhere. Um, that said, just because there's a normalization of obesity and overweight in, you know, in, in a lot, large part of the world now, uh, that doesn't make it not a disease. And so I think we need to, to address it as such. Um, that would be like saying, you know, diabetes keeps, keeps increasing. Therefore, let's, let's normalize it and, and just say it's okay to have diabetes. And it's not, right? So... Um, I, I would kind of view it the same way. If, if it is a disease, it is a disease, and we need to do something about it, um, just in a non-judgmental way. And I think that that's that's the big difference. And in a, you know, being both open-minded but also considerate of of the whole process. And right now, the anti-obesity bias is so strong that it affects, you know, who pays for what and and how how we actually get to treat our patients. Um, so that's kind of kind of where I, I fall in it. I think sometimes too often the, you know, like the popular media likes to say, well, if it's not this, then it's the exact opposite. 
Um, and we know that there's there's some hybrid um, because at, as things stand now, the people who have to end up making different choices and changing are the patients, even if it's not their fault, they're put into this, you know, rampantly obesogenic environment. Give me some specific examples of obesity bias in medicine. Um, let's let's see if we can drill down here. I've had other doctors in the past come on and talk about how they kind of had this epiphany after a while and working with their own patients where maybe they wouldn't have given as much time or as credence or had as much hope for a particular patient who was struggling with their weight not necessarily writing them off as a lost cause, but certainly didn't exactly hold the same hope for that patient as they would somebody with a normal BMI. What kind of challenges does that present from a medical setting? So I, you know, research has shown in the past that, that, you know, cases of, of bias happen particularly strongly in, in medicine. Um, and, you know, things like, you know, you, you walk in the room, you see someone with obesity and right, right, right away, you, know, you might not have explicit bias where you think, you know, you'd act out against the patient, but there's an implicit bias of that, what you were saying, that, that sense of hopelessness, um, the, the, the thought that someone with obesity is inherently lazier or less capable or less interested in their health. Um, and therefore, you know, the physician might not put as much effort into it. Um, another side that we see here, and I know we'll probably get into talking about the medications that are so popular right now, um, is the thought that, you know, more advanced options like, you know, like the uh, surgery or medications require a certain level of effort on the part of the patient beforehand to prove that they're worthy of, of more advanced treatment, even when they're struggling and have a lot of problems. Whereas, you know, you wouldn't say that about diabetes or hyperlipidemia or hypertension or, or cancer, um, even though all of these are, are more lifestyle based than anything else. Um, so I think th these are things that we, we tend to, to fight against a lot to make sure that, that we understand that there's both explicit and implicit bias and to make sure that we're normalizing um, the thought process of this person. If this is a disease and this person is suffering and there are other things associated with it, you know, we want to focus on the, on the long term aspects and be able to get to them and not not have them go through extra hoops because they did this to themselves. You use the term, you walk into a room and you see someone with obesity, as opposed to seeing, uh, saying that you saw someone who was obese. What is the distinction there? I have had experts on the show in the past who have really gone to great lengths to always say it needs to be someone with obesity. Is that to protect the patient's feelings or is that because we're talking about it in terms of obesity being a disease, much like the same way you would say you walked into the room and saw someone with cancer correct I, th I think you know the 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 latter there um if, if it is a disease it is not necessarily defining of who the person is um and you know you say theoretically you say you know an obese patient or an obese person um as opposed to a person with obesity then then you know you're making that like the defining characteristic for them and i it, it's part of kind of changing the mindset i'm never too into semantics um, but this is one that 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 stuck with me, and and you know we do a lot of teaching, and so we make sure that that the younger generations get this, just so they you know they can be more sensitive to the the subject on you know both from the patient side and respecting the medical side. 
All right, let's talk about these medications. I know that that's going to be a hot topic uh, at our panel at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. By the way, really looking forward to sitting down with you and uh, Dr. Garth Davis, Dr. Jim Loomis, uh, Dr. Neil Barnard. A whole bunch of us are going to be Dr. Steve Loam. We're all going to be on the stage together for, I believe, a two-hour panel. Yeah, um, on that Friday. So that'll be Friday, August 11th. But the conference runs August 10th through 12th at the Grand Hyatt in Washington, D.C. By the way, you can get your tickets right now at pcrm.org slash ICNM. I mean, just a, a amazing lineup of speakers. But one of the things that is likely to come up at the panel, uh, obviously, are these weight loss medications. And getting ready to speak with you today, I came across a story from Bloomberg. And it was talking about Weight Watchers really shifting their model to uh, go with a medication-first approach. This company has actually, Dr. King, gone so far as to purchase a telehealth company so that they now can prescribe Wigovi, Ozempic, and the like to their clients. Um, that, to me, sounds like a medication-first approach. I'm curious if you can help kind of break down the pros and cons of going that route from uh, the medical perspective, and then maybe we'll get into it a little bit about from the patient perspective as well. What's your take on on these weight loss medications? Well, I think for, first is for is not to say that medications equals capitalism, but this this is capitalism, right? I mean, this is business. Um, I think a lot of a lot of companies like Weight Watchers are are struggling financially and. Right now, the medications have gotten better, so there's a craze for the medications, and so you know they're going probably in a way that that allows them to to you know profit off of what's going on or or stay solvent. Or you know I, I'm not um, familiar with the exact details of their finances, but um, odds are that's the case. And I know that that a few of the the startups that happened you know with colleagues of mine you know over the last three four years have been struggling because you know how you figure out the medication and make a business out of it is, is complicated. But I think my guess is Weight Watchers primary aim here is not how do we get more people to be healthy long-term, but how do we stay in business? So th that's just my take on that. Um, sorry, yeah. you did ask me some questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it, it, but then that goes to like, you know, medication first approach, oh, right, right, and right. then you get into the diet and the lifestyle factors. Right. Um, I agree with you. Like, I'm not sure that, as you said, that is going to be the long term solution. Um, it looks like something might be missing from the puzzle. But then there's also the big part of me who had gone up and down the scale so many freaking times in his life and was so frustrating and blew through a bunch of these programs. Um, where I know that there was also something else missing from what it was that they were offering even before they, they bought this telehealth service to be able to prescribe. So, I mean, just the medication first approach in general, whether we're talking Weight Watchers or anyone else, what's your take? Is that missing the mark or is that really where we should be started? And then after that, we can address the other factors. Well, I think that it is, you know, from, from a, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking aside from Weight Watchers, right? Uh, just from, from the obesity medicine side of things. Um, I think it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting discussion to be had. Um, because, you know, we know that the, the effect of these medications is, is less um, if your lifestyle is not, not you know, on point. Um, for instance, like eating high fat foods, 
um, blocks the efficacy of, of GLP-1, which is, you know, the, the GLP-1 uh, hormone, you know, agonists, you know, the, the, the meds that imitate those, those hormones and, and act in your brain and your gut um, that really decrease the appetite and help you lose weight. If you eat a high fat diet, it kind of suppresses that, right? So just taking the med and not doing anything else with it um, isn't so effective. On the other hand, how many times in your own life have you, you know, were you going to do an intensive program and then, and then, you know, it didn't last or you were unable to keep motivation up or whatever the, the issue was. So, you know, it, it's kind of hard to deprive people of that. I'll say in my own practice, and I think we talked about this before, about 30% of um, my patients were on medications when I first started my current job at Northwell about eight years ago. And now that number is, is probably closer to 80, if not a little bit higher. Um, so even though our, our, the bulk of our discussion, we want to be about lifestyle and we keep, um, emphasizing that long-term, uh, without the lifestyle, it's gonna be hard to, to either get off these meds or keep the weight off. Um, it's also hard to deprive people of medications that are now, you know, have 15, 16, 20 plus percent weight loss averages. Um, given that the majority of people who would just try a lifestyle intervention, don't stick with it and even get to that point. So, you know, I'm of, of two minds about that. Yeah, I, I got you. It's, it's definitely not an easy answer, you know, and I would be hypocritical to say, well, absolutely don't do it, given the fact that I had bariatric surgery. You know, I felt like it was a last resort. I had tried a lot of other things. But that then brings me to the fact that no matter how a person initially loses weight, there still has to be that diet and lifestyle intervention because without those two things, in addition to whatever else you're being prescribed, whatever other program you're on, to me, that long-term success is not going to be there so that these medications or a surgical intervention, it's just going to be another stopgap that ends in heartache for the patient. So how do you marry these two things together? Because there's a big part of me who is concerned that, you know, as my grandma used to say back in the day, you can't put the horse back in the barn. And the medications are already out there, right? So how do you marry these two things together with a long-term successful program for the patient? Yeah, so I, I think um, right now how we're, we're doing it is you know, if, if patients want medications or we think that it's more appropriate to start, you know, we, we give that advice. Um, and and we keep, you know, emphasizing, you know, these are the other pieces of equation of the equation that, that are, are really necessary for long-term. And think of the medications just like you could think of the bariatric surgery as a tool, not a cure. Um, and, and that's, I think that that's the way you look at it. Um, it's hard to, to, you know, it's hard to be like in a camp that says, well, you know, a lot of, a lot of my colleagues at other universities are, you know, they, they just bounce from medication to medication, to medication or add and add and add and add. Um, and then just say cut calories, you know, um, and I think that that the the disease and the things associated with it and the human brain requires such a um, a complicated set of of circumstances to be able to keep the weight off long term. Um, and I think you're you're a great example of of that. Um, you know, the surgery was a tool, but you know, I, I with all due respect, I don't think you're in a position you're in health wise without the lifestyle. Um, and I think I think that 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 makes you like the poster child for how surgery really should work. 
uh, or how medicine should work, which is using it as a tool. There's some changes that were temporary that help with weight loss. There's some changes that are permanent that happen. Um, but that, that, you know, with that's what we call an adjuvant in addition to the intensive lifestyle stuff that you've been able to, to, um, to, you know, succeed with over the long haul. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's so funny, like when I went even for the initial consultation for the surgery, they use that term. It's a tool. It's a tool. It's a tool. But I can guarantee you everybody in that room who was a candidate and considering undergoing that procedure, myself included at the point, was like, tool my, my right foot, like this is going to be the solution. And all of our chips were being put into that basket. And the thing that, you know, looking back on it was really concerning was that the number one question that was being asked among the patients was when will i be able to eat this again or that again or whatever their favorite foods were right so already they're just looking at okay well i'm going to suck it up i'm going to do this short term but pretty soon i'm going to be able to get right back to it and i'm going to be okay hindsight is 2020 man and like i was not going to do you know, fast food or anything like that again. But certainly I think that there was a lot of things in there that I was ready to put back on my menu as, as quickly as possible. Like, how do you relay that to the patient without really scaring them, man? Because again, Dr. Kane, it's like, if you tell somebody at that point that you're never going to be able to eat a hamburger at McDonald's again, you're never going to be able to have that meat lovers pizza from uh, pizza hut again, like that's going to freak them out to the point where they may straight up walk out of your office man yeah I, I look that's complicated i i probably look i i have a saying that like i find the love before i walk in the room or now it's like click on the the screen since we do a lot of virtual work now <laughs> um with all my patients even if they're they're you know philosophically not aligned with me on this that said um i believe that the pac patients are owed the truth um and they can make informed decisions i think their decisions end up being skewed by the you know, the body chemistry and their history um, that makes it complicated. And, and I, I sometimes ask pe people to, to trust what I'm, you know, what I'm talking about. And I, I mentioned the science and I mentioned studies and um, to, to make it easier on them. But the, the, the problem is that it's not like you can't eat a McDonald's hamburger, you shouldn't eat a McDonald's hamburger, right? And, and now we're back to, to, to personal decision making. And um, where I think, I think that, you know, you can't blame a patient for slipping up and eating a cookie or McDonald's hamburger, if it's, they're exposed to it, um, at some point the accountability has to be there that like, I understand what these things are doing to me and I would prefer to live a life without them is the ideal point from which I can work with someone. Mm. Yeah, it's it's hard and, and the person has to be ready to change. I think that if somebody's walking into your office for an appointment, they're at least closer to wanting to to change, which definitely makes yeah, the conversation. I have a biased easier. population, right? So yeah, um, you know, some of the people that I've trained recently, that I've hired recently, uh, have come from like inpatient um, inpatient work, and in the inpatient work, they're not they're not seeing uh, you know healthy patients or patients with obesity who who really want to get a hold of their health. They're seeing people who have the the complications from the uncontrolled aspect of it. And they haven't asked to be hospitalized. They just got sick, um, as opposed to patients that voluntarily come to see me. So uh, there's a difference because a lot of their time is spent kind of motivating and figuring out and salvaging 
Um, whereas, whereas I get to, I have the luxury of being able to, to dive more deeply in patients who already come with some degree of motivation. I mean, it, it's not, not always exactly what I'm looking for in terms of what they're motivated to do, but, but it, it makes it a lot, um, you know, the conversation is a lot more direct and honest. Um, and if, if, you know, people came voluntarily seeking out my advice, then, then, then I think I owe it to them. Absolutely. Do you find that patients are receptive to those like really curt, you know, here are the facts. I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. This is just the reality. Are they receptive to those types of messages? Um, okay. There's different types of receptive, right? So are they receptive? Like, do they understand what I'm saying? Patients with a modicum of medical sophistication? Yes. Um, then they'll, they'll say, yeah, but, <laughs> and this is in the war, particularly in the world of these new medications and the medication popularity, a lot of people are like, yeah, but I don't, how do I get to like keep my old lifestyle and still lose weight? And that's a, that's a, that's a difficult spot for all of us to be in. Right. Yeah. And I think the new meds, um, allow some of that. Um, but it's not going to last. And that's, that's the, that's the issue that, that we have is like, yeah, you can look at the scale 25, 30, 40 pounds down, but you know, years from now, what's this going to look like? And what is the long-term efficacy uh, of these weight loss medications? It seems like there's been an explosion of them recently, and a lot of us are just now learning about them. It makes me wonder if there have been any long-term studies about the success rate here. How long does that weight stay off? Is it permanent? Do you need to stay on them permanently in order to have that success? What do we know there? Um, the answer is, uh, right? Like, <laughs> um, does that work? Uh, <laughs> I mean, we may want a little bit more clarity than more Yeah. So, so generally speaking, uh, when, when I talk about medications and I've been asked to lecture, you know, like once, twice a month now, just on medications. Um, I like to show a graph of an older medication that's now off the market. But what, what you see is you see, you know, weight loss for in the three to six month range and then a little bit of a taper and then, and then a slow weight regain slow after that. Um, you know, into a year or two later where they've still maintained a, a decent amount, but not a ton of weight loss. And you then compared to the people after you who stopped taking the medications rapidly back to where they came from and probably a little bit over. Hmm. So in general, uh, that's the trend and new, um, new medications have been approved for, for indefinite use. Uh, most patients are not interested in that. Um, and you know, what we do when we, when we're tapering people off of medications is making sure that at that point, you know, we have a lifestyle and a plan in place. Um, we know that the exercise, particularly in the weight maintenance phase is, is really important. Um, and, um, you know, what you eat, uh, you know, trying to get people on a diet that is, you know, they kind of have two rules. You, some people we can get right into whole food plant-based that those people have amazing, amazing success. But you know, the two rules I use are one, Food should be as unrefined as possible too. It should be as little animal or as much plant as possible. And you combine those two things, you know, it puts the ideal at whole food plant based, but it, you know, we get, we get close to that. And if, if they have a system that works for them and they kind of buy into it and, and then, then they have the best fighting chance. Oh, um, but, but there are a lot of what we call metabolic adaptations to, to uh, having lost weight, whether you have surgery, whether you have, use meds, whether you use a combination, whether you're just doing it with diet and exercise. Um, there, there are metabolic adaptations that slow down metabolism, increase appetite, and 
Um, so you're always fighting against that. And, you know, we have lifestyle based mechanisms to increase your metabolism, right? Exercise. We have lifestyle based ways to, um, to, uh, you know, decrease appetite by eating kind of a high bulk, high fiber diet that uh, made up of whole plant foods mainly. Um, and that, that's actually the most efficacious way to control appetite, you know, for, you know, for multiple meals at a time. Um, and so moving people in that direction at least takes up part of what those medications were doing. Gotcha. So uh, just for clarity here, when you say metabolic adaptations, is that the body kind of um, changing to work against, you know, the drugs or the surgery? Because I know that, you know, even though um, my intestines essentially were rewired inside over time, you know, that malabsorption issue with bariatric surgery becomes less and less because the intestines adapt and it finds a way to absorb more and more. Is that kind of the same thing that you're talking about? Well, well it's an adaptation, but the adaptation to um, losing weight or losing fat in particular and the adaptation to chronically eating fewer calories is that your body kind of assuming it's starving to death will slow down and make you hungry right so you don't starve to death now going from 420 to 320 your body you think I still have another 150 pounds to go and yet your your brain and your you know your uh, neuroendocrine system uh, are, are thinking you know this guy's starving to death we better put the brakes on Right. That's kind of the, the easiest way to think about it. Um, gotcha. And that happens with modest weight loss, you know, like 10 percent. Gotcha. Actually, it happens. Sorry. It happens with 72 hours of low calorie eating. So, wow. OK, that's pretty quick. And okay. then after about a I think it's sorry, pardon my memory here. It's somewhere in the one to two week range. I think it's two weeks of of normalized kind of what we call isocaloric, like eating, eating and exercising enough to match everything um that's how you you would reverse it but that doesn't take away the weight loss part you know once you've lost a lot of weight then you're missing some of the hormones that are made from fat cells all right we were talking a little bit about it you know making sure that the patient was informed and that they have all the facts um so i would think that then when you're talking about prescribing weight loss medication obviously the discussion about potential side effects needs to come up during that conversation what are some of the more common known side effects of these weight loss drugs so i mean the different drugs have different side effects the, the ones people are probably interested in are, are what we call the, those glp1 receptor agonists the, the things in in the ozempic wagovi family um the very, very common would be stuff like, you know, heartburn or reflux um, and nausea. Um, and that's because the, the um, one of the ways that that hormone works is it delays how fast food moves out of your stomach into your intestines. So food's just sitting there a long time. If you eat a heavy meal, a high fat meal and so forth, you know, things are going to kind of reflux more, more likely to reflux upwards and cause discomfort um, or, or it could be nausea. And, and the hormone itself causes a little bit of, you know, malaise and nausea. Um, we also see constipation, <clears throat> not in everyone, um, but not as commonly, but, but particularly people with a history of constipation. Um, and then on, on the more dangerous side, um, you know, there's a potential risk of thyroid cancer. I, I, I say it with that tone of voice because, you know, three studies, large scale studies that have looked at this, the first two really didn't show much of an increase. The third one did. Um, I have you know, some pretty trustworthy people looking at the way the statistics were calculated from that third study that was looking at insurance claims from France. And it turns out like almost everyone has insurance there. So you get a good bunch of the population. Um, and it looks like the thyroid cancers, both the, the more common, what we call papillary thyroid cancer and 
medullary cancer, which has a mortality rate, um, did go up, but it's not a hundred percent clear if that was, you know, done correctly. Um, but if you look at the older studies that were done here, there's a, there's a slope that looks like it's trending towards it. If it, even if it didn't reach what we call statistical significance. So, you know, I, I think there, there's suspicion and it comes down to risk benefit ratios and, and, you know, we decide, we decide what we're going to do, you know, uh, with the patient and based on the circumstances. And for some people it's a no and for other people maybe. And then the other issue is that um, it decreases how hard the gallbladder squeezes. Um, and so the risk of having a gallbladder taken out, um, looking at um, data from England's national um, health services, um, uh, looks like it was about a double risk of having your gallbladder taken out. And this is a population that has a higher risk anyway, but even double that. Um, you'll hear about stuff like pancreatitis. I have not seen it in over 15 years of these meds being out. Um, but, but, uh, that doesn't mean that it's not possible. So we, you know, we take it seriously and are judicious and we give the medications too. If that's uh, enough of the side effects, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good list. I mean, that'll take up some time on a commercial for sure. Um, question for you, you mentioned constipation though, being one of those potential side effects. Um, could that also be a byproduct of somebody not necessarily changing their diet if they've been eating historically a low fiber diet, staying pretty much dehydrated. There's just not a lot to move through or it's not going to be easy for things to move through the system. Could that be what is the issue here because they haven't modified their diet in addition to adding the drug or is it the drug itself that's causing the constipation more it's often? Both, than not? but probably more of the drug. Yeah. Because I have, I, you know, my patients almost always increase their fiber when, when they're working with me and, and I still see it a fair amount. Gotcha. Um, you know, I have patients on very high fiber diets, sometimes with fiber supplements and lots of water and lots of exercise and stool softeners and all that. You know, just it, it, it sounds very much not like the, the reason that I got into this field. But you know, sometimes we do do that for patients in whom these medications really are helping a lot. Um, and so, uh, I, yeah, I, th I think part of it has to do with the transit from based on the hormones, because understand you're getting it's, we have our own GLP one in our system and um, I know Dr. Barner just sent out a newsletter and, and there was, I think Pisharam did some studies showing that GLP-1 goes up when you eat a, you know, plant-based diet, but um, uh, it doesn't go up at the same amounts. You're getting like super therapeutic amounts from these medications. All right. Let me ask you this um, and we'll kind of wind down here. What is, you know, the ideal candidate for this medication? My concern is that with these weight loss drugs now kind of being all the rage, people are going to turn to them, um, again, not as a last resort, but kind of as a first resort. Who would you say is the ideal candidate for these prescriptions? So it's going to depend on, you know, as, as time is going on, you know, in the next five to 10 years, there's probably going to be you know, five or eight new similar medications that you know, have the efficacy of average, you know, 15, 20, 25% weight loss. Um, and it, it's getting pretty hard to argue against them being part of the, the, the mainstream, you know, early treatment for patients in the need. Um, I would say the candidates for these medications are going to be, you know, people with the ones out now and some of the ones coming out soon are going to be people with known insulin resistance. Um, patients, uh, you know, some patients don't have the what we call the satiety cue, so they start eating, but there is no off switch. 
And when they take these medications, you know, a portion of patients said for the first time in my life, I actually have that off switch. And no matter what I ate, I didn't really get it. Um, you know, for them, it definitely makes sense. Um, there are people who've had bariatric surgery that have, you know, stalled earlier or, 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 um, or started regaining weight. Um, very often they are very good candidates for this. People with certain hormonal issues like polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, uh, very often without medications, no matter how healthily they eat and exercise, we get stuck. So I, I think those are kind of like no brainer cases. Um, and then the question is, you know, for someone, let's say, you know, you came to me back in the day, right. And you've relatively motivated, but you know, you're, you're, you're interested in really going all out and losing 200 plus pounds. Are these meds enough? What happens when you take them and lose 50, 60 pounds, which is great, but then kind of get stuck, you know, what do we do? Um, so the question for, for patients like that is like, you know, I often try to start without it, wait till we kind of hit a metabolic wall and then, and then go forward from that. Um, so that's, that's really where we are. I think, I think the one place that, that, that we try to avoid is, you know, someone who's just trying to lose a small amount of weight and um, doesn't really have much in the way of medical issues. And they're planning on doing this as a temporary, as a temporary measure as a jump start. Um, that's pretty much a recipe for failure. So, yeah. so we, we have to make sure that we're looking at this kind of holistically and, and longitudinally. And I think no matter which way you kind of chalk it up or look at it, uh, I think that we can all agree that this is a complicated issue here, Doc. Oh, oh yeah. And then we, we didn't even surface, right? I mean, I didn't go on any of my like capitalism rants. I think I did mention capitalism though. So I'm eh, happy a little bit, um, little bit. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and just the, the, there was a great, um, uh, op-ed in the New York times today about administrative burden of medicine. And this is both on the, you know, the, the caregiver and team side and on the patient side um, that often blocks care. And, and we're in that zone right now. Um, the, the health insurance companies, because these medications are so expensive and there are supply chain issues, um, getting these meds, talking about how to get the meds have become much to the chagrin of me and my team um, uh, has become way too large a percentage of the time that we spend with our patients rather than uh, being able to, to go through, you know, these important lifestyle and psychological factors that, that I think are, are really the keys to the long-term maintenance. All right. Well, look, uh, plenty more to talk about. We're going to get into a lot of that at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. Again, August 10th through 12th in Washington, D.C. Summertime is lovely in the nation's capital. So join us at the Grand Hyatt for three days filled with health information and knowledge, the likes of which you will find absolutely nowhere else. Continuing education credits are, in fact, available. And don't forget our big weight loss panel with Dr. Kane, myself. That will be Friday, August 11th. So many others are going to be there. Tickets at pcrm.org slash ICNM. And Dr. Kane, I cannot wait to continue the conversation, my friend. Thanks for getting us going this morning. Thanks. That's the best conference of the year every year and the best food for anyone who wants to see that plant-based eating can be delicious. Um, <laughs> uh, looking forward to it. Of course, this is the third time I'll be speaking and every time I'm right after lunch. So. Yeah, man, there you go. Well, you're going up there with a full belly, man. Life is good. All right. All right, Dr. Jamie Kane. Appreciate it, my friend. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Pleasure. Roomies, I am not going to kid you when I tell you that the food is delicious. There is zero doubt about that. Even, even the old me would have loved to have been able to sit down at this conference and enjoy a meal because the food is, quite frankly, 
as tasty as it gets. And that makes it worth the price of admission alone. But if a plate of yum yums isn't enough to get you there, no worries, because this might settle up the score. Because we also have speaking at the conference this year, Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Michael Greger, Dr. Christy Funk, Dr. Gemma Newman, Dr. Dean Ornish, and so many others. Think about that list of names. So incredible. And we would love for you to be there in person. Join us, please. PCRM.org slash ICNM coming up very soon, August 10th through 12th in Washington, D.C. Hope to see you there. So talking about weight loss medication today, but I found another study pretty interesting that I wanted to share with you. Not necessarily about weight loss medication, but in this instance, medication for digestive disorders like irritable bowel syndrome and how excess fat can actually prevent those drugs from working as well as they should. This is from investigators at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. They say the mass and composition of our bodies can significantly affect the way that medications are metabolized and absorbed, adding that IBD patients with higher levels of intra-abdominal visceral fat, and that's a distinctive kind of fat that's found in the abdominal area. It surrounds your stomach and your liver and your intestines. Well, those patients, those were the ones who struggled to improve despite being prescribed certain anti-inflammatory biologics. We're talking specifically here about three medications. And so for this study, they have 141 IBD patients, each given one of three of those medications, and then some control patients as well. And this is what lead researcher Dr. Gil Milmed said. He said, quote, we found that higher visceral adiposity was associated with higher levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines, suggesting that fat tissue promotes inflammation. That is the opposite of what we want and increases the resistance to biologic drug therapy. He added that more research is needed because we don't know whether lowering visceral fat or giving higher doses of the medications would improve drug efficacy. So they don't know. They don't know right now whether losing weight ahead of time, making some diet and lifestyle changes would help in this particular arena. But we do know that making changes to your diet and lifestyle certainly help across the board in so many other areas. And maybe it's not a stretch of the imagination to believe that if you were to eliminate some of that visceral fat that if your symptoms don't clear up naturally, then the drugs would become more effective. I'm certainly not a doctor. I'm not qualified to speak to that. But I don't believe that it is a big stretch to hypothesize that that may be the case. And maybe we'll talk more about that on Wednesday with Dr. Neil Barnard when he joins me on the exam room live. And you can join us at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel or Facebook page. And of course, catch the podcast right back here on Thursday. Or if you're listening on demand anytime, it will be the very next episode in order. But that's just it. You know, it kind of makes me think that so many of us are searching for that magical solution 
we take this, we take that, and then suddenly our problems go away. And it is much easier just to take this or take that than it is to make diet and lifestyle changes. God knows nobody is ever going to tell you otherwise. And if they do, man, I don't know what kind of life they've been leading, but <laughs> yeah. It's not always easy. It's very hard to change your diet and your lifestyle because you're talking about changing habits. But once you make those changes, man, a whole other world can open for you. And maybe, just maybe, as was the case with so many other things, your health will improve here. And, and in the case of this study, perhaps, in fact, losing that visceral fat if you have IBD will, in fact, help alleviate a lot of those symptoms. And if it doesn't alleviate them completely, then perhaps then the effectiveness of the medication will be great enough so that it does. But either way, you're not going to be left to suffer, and that is the hope. And regardless of the efficacy of these drugs, again, what we do know is that when you lose this weight, you get that obesity under control and you conquer that disease, your risk for so many other diseases across the board drops. When I go around and I, I give talks or people ask me questions, I always bring it back to, yes, they call me the weight loss champion because of my weight loss, but my weight loss journey is no longer just about weight loss. It's about the Alzheimer's disease that runs in my family. It's about the heart disease that runs in my family. It's about the cancer that runs in my family. It's about all of those chronic diseases that run in so many families. And now, what I thought was certain to be my fate, my destiny in the future, no longer is the case. And that can be the case for you as well. If you are able to conquer a lot of these health demons, beginning with obesity. And the weight loss journey is now just a health journey, a really profound health journey. You can't say just. It is a profound journey that quite literally will change your life the trajectory that it's on today and well into the future. Totally change course for the better. And if you feel like you could use a little bit of help getting started with that journey, try the Barnard Medical Center. The Barnard Medical Center is powering this episode of the Exam Room Podcast. Their doctors and dietitians practice lifestyle medicine and promote plant-based nutrition with in-person visits in their Washington, D.C. office and telemedicine appointments in 18 states. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 to learn more. That's barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Jamie Kane for being here and raising our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.